0: Bonjour, Tansé. Welcome to Mino Gandagan, the Good Voice podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. I'm your host, Tim Fontaine. On this episode, we speak with two women passionate about education. We pose the question, has reconciliation happened within the education system? Has it happened within the lives of these educators? Stick around to find out. Our first guest is Jen Storm, an Ojibwe artist and author from Kuchiching First Nation who calls Winnipeg, Manitoba home. She's the author of such novels as Deadly Loyalties and The Firestarters.
1: Bonjour, Tansé. Welcome to Mino the Good Voice podcast. And I am here with Jen Storm. Jen, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: My name is Jen Storm. Um, I am from Kuchiching, Ontario in northwestern Ontario. And I reside in Winnipeg, Manitoba.
1: If you follow Jen Storm on social media, uh, you'll see that she is an amazing visual artist.
2: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Pat yourself on the back. <laughs> um, but Jen is also an accomplished a- author. Yes. And you have many books in the um, that you've done, some literature and some graphic novels.
2: Yes, I guess I'll talk about my latest ones, especially the graphic novels because they are, directly related to reconciliation okay and the first one I wrote was with Highwater Press they're both with Highwater Press who has been a huge it's a non-indigenous publishing company that has made a mandate and has a specific like section for indigenous literature because they know that it's important they respect our voice and our ability to tell our stories and they give us that platform to do it yeah and to get it into schools and all those other that very important work so Highwater published both of my books and um the first one i wrote was fire starters which is a book about two young men growing up on the reserve beside a small town that's non-indigenous and i think that this is kind of a setting that a lot of us can relate to Mm -hmm. like coming from reserves and that sort of racial animosity between the two yes that is kind of an undercurrent of the culture there um and it's not widely talked about or acknowledged because it's confrontational to say it right so i wanted to explore that setting and i did use kuching Kuch ontario as mm-hmm. a visual basis of it so if you actually read the book and if you're from kuching Kuch like you are yeah. <laughs> you'll recognize like all the landscapes like yeah. i have the gas bar i have the actually I have the dump there um, nice. my grandmother's house like everything is the literal picture of the place. yeah. Um, but I don't call it Coochaching Ontario because mm-hmm. I don't want this to come across as a true story. Right. Because it, it isn't. It is fictional. But I just really wanted to kind of honor my community and like visually represent it. Um, and as well as my grandmother, who's in the book as well, like visually. And also the town of Fort Francis is in it too, visually. But I call them both different things. And um, the story is about these two young boys who get framed for arson and there's a lot of racial tension between the Mm -hmm. town and the boys. And as things kind of come about, we kind of also explore like different justice systems, like the traditional justice system versus like the Western justice system. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of themes I touched base on that were important to me to kind of share and explore and have kids know about that have to do with reconciliation. But it doesn't really answer any questions because... Some of the characters are trying to reconcile without the word being used and they go about it the way that is productive. And then there's some characters in there who are very not productive, but kind of come around Mm -hmm. like, you know what I mean? So I tried to kind of what I was trying to answer, I think, with my story is how can kids like on the res or on a small town or even in cities, like how can kids be part of reconciliation when it's become such a heavy topic to talk about? Mm -hmm. And it's become so political and it's become so like national, like it seems so heavy. So like I I I was thinking like if I was a youth listening to all this reconciliation going around and stuff, like it sounds so heavy and like Mm -hmm. I can't be a part of it because it's so big and out there. And it seems like it's the job of politicians. It's the job of media. It's the job of like... People with big platforms like it seems like that's their work to do and like Mm -hmm. uh, like how do I fit in that so that's kind of the question I was trying to answer with my story in that way for youth is that reconciliation at the end of the day it's about relationships and it's about how we treat one another how we respect one another and it can be that simple and Mm -hmm. that's like the biggest part of the work is that yeah. So that's kind of what I wanted to kind of put out there for the youth.
1: I mean, that's pretty major, especially, you know, right now in this time, especially as an Indigenous woman and an Indigenous mother. Mm-hmm. So you sort of gave like a broad, a broad definition of what reconciliation is. But for you personally, you know, as somebody who's in the arts, mm-hmm. um, very male dominated
2: yeah, places. Places, <laughs> uh,
1: especially as a visual artist and yeah. as a, a wordsmith. What does reconciliation mean to you personally?
2: The way, and, and actually, I was kind of confronted with something recently. Okay. That really hit home to me and what my responsibility is. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's easy to see other people's platforms and say, like, this is what you should be doing. This is what you should be doing. But you don't recognize your own platform. And so what somebody told me once is like after they've um read fire starters and whatever and um they had some very like good questions about it that were very constructive and blah 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 but then somebody said like why weren't these characters women they're Mm. like I read in another interview that you did that you didn't want them to be female like uh, characters for some reason and um in the context of that previous interview she was referring to it wasn't that I didn't absolutely didn't want them to be women it's just that when i imagined them i just imagined them as boys like yeah. it's just like how it came because i actually like had a dream about this arson on my reserve and then that's just kind of been in my head all the time and originally mm-hmm. i was like i really want to write that story because i think fire would be cool as like a graphic novel right yeah and then the story developed from there but i just didn't think twice about writing from a male perspective i just thought it'd be cool it'd be different it's something i haven't done mm-hmm. and what her question kind of brought up to me is as an indigenous person, I've taken my responsibility in putting out indigenous content
3: mm-hmm. and
2: all of my characters, all of my paintings, they're all indigenous people. And I make that like a point. Yeah. Um, but what I didn't recognize was that I'm also a woman and it is my job as a woman to make sure that women are portrayed in these ways as well and that mm-hmm. they're in literature and that there is like a huge um, imbalance of female to male characters. And Firestarters would actually be really cool if it was all girls like blaming each other for arson and getting into fights and stuff like that's cool and people don't do that that much and i was like that's something that i should have done and now that i see the fact that like i do have a platform Mm -hmm. like i'm an indigenous female artist i'm an indigenous female writer and that should be my responsibility like i need to do that so that's kind of like what and, and that's a part of what reconciliation is to me too is that these are the talents i've been given yeah. And I have opportunities that not everyone has. Not anyone who wants to paint can paint or wants to paint. Yeah. But they might have a story to say. Or, and, I, and I have the opportunity to put that out there. Yeah. And same with writing. Like not everyone is able to put out books. Yeah. I have relationships and contacts that allow me to do so. So I should be doing so. That's part of my job. Mm-hmm. To put our stories out there and our voices out there. And to let young women know this is possible and this yeah. is a platform that I want to share with you. How uh, how do you think the industry
1: has changed in terms of Indigenous equity?
2: Not only is it more sought out mm-hmm. but it's definitely more demanded. I think that's the difference is that it's not just some niche and it's not just Indigenous people wanting to read Indigenous people. There's mm-hmm. a, r- like a lot of people wanting to read Indigenous people and I think a lot of people are recognizing that not only is it a valuable point of view for classrooms and stuff I think it's just realizing like indigenous people are big parts of the classroom like we just have we just have to be there like it just makes sense now you know yeah so I feel that there's a lot of room for indigenous artists and especially indigenous writers to kind of get out there and put our stuff out there because our point of view is has been missing for long 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 time and so people are kind of making room for that now. Or I don't know if people are making room so much as I think we've made room for ourselves. Yeah, And it's being recognized, you know what I mean? So we need to kind of keep that momentum going and we need more writers, more people coming in and doing that work. Mm-hmm. Um, what was, I was about to say something else there. Well, can you read the question again?
1: Oh, um, how has your industry changed in terms
2: of indigenous equity? And oh, yes. So what I also wanted to bring up was the newest graphic novel that we've been working on. Right. In terms of this, um, because High Water, I think, is a great example of that question and people that have really taken it seriously and really shared their um, shared their platform to mm-hmm. put those books out there and their contacts and stuff. But we have an anthology coming out and it's a book about. Um, it's called Topway. Topway. And it came from the idea of, like, when Canada turned 150. And you remember that big thing, like, we're older than 150. Yeah. And, like, this is celebrating, like, colonial standards and, mm-hmm. like, et cetera. So the way that they're responding to that is um, this is the past 150 years and some mm-hmm. from the Indigenous people's perspective. Right. So each of the writers that contributed to it um, take a certain time period mm-hmm. and then they write a story from that time period from the indigenous point of view of that piece of history okay which to me was just the coolest thing ever so that is i'm so cool yeah so there's like first contact told from the indigenous perspective there's another story of um oh what is it uh i don't know more i think from mm-hmm. the indigenous perspective and then there's also oh my god why is it like what was that big one uh, in in um, Oka? Yeah. So they did Oka from the indigenous perspective. And there's a couple other ones in there, too, from like Northwest Territories. Um, the one I did was about Jack Fiddler. Oh, OK. Have you heard that one? Yeah. Yeah. So I did that perspective, but from the Wendigo's perspective and the Wendigo's oh. female. So it's the female perspective because no one, even people that have talked to indigenous peoples, they always talk to the men. So, all of history that even that little piece of history that we have where people actually take like indigenous people's words and quoted them, yeah, they're usually all men, yeah. So, I wanted to talk about it from the what I would imagine because there's Mm -hmm. nothing to go back on from the 1900s of women, but how I imagine the women perceived what was going on, yeah, and also like the woman who inevitably was killed for being a wendigo, like her perspective of what was going on, yeah. So, that was like a lot of fun for me to do, and I'm really excited about the project because of. What it does for reconciliation and what it could do for schoolrooms and mm-hmm. classrooms, too, right? Because they're seeing history told from our perspective. That's not, uh, I don't want to say like <laughs> 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 terribly like judgy word, but like kind of like almost paternalistically, yeah, the way they have been in textbooks, like yeah. when I was growing up, yeah, and just. Yeah. Like just seeing something a bit more real from our perspective, I think is going to do a lot of good. And I love graphic novels for how much story you can get in fewer pages because you have an artist that's doing a lot of the literary work for you. Yeah. Like I write scripts yeah, like this, like movie scripts. Yeah. And then an artist is doing all of that work for you that usually takes like like one page can equal 50 pages of literature pages like you know what I mean yeah. like there's so much you can do in graphic novels yeah. and so much story you can absorb and almost absorb it deeper mm-hmm. because you have visuals going with the yes. words so like I've learned a lot of history like reading David Robertson's books on like Tommy Prince for example yes. and it took me what like five minutes yeah or Helen Betty Osborne because it took and it took five ten minutes to read yeah. through those books but you get the story yeah so that's what I really love about the idea of graphic novels in schools especially talking about Indigenous perspective and knowledge That is. And I find that um, especially like and
1: I'm not trying to, you know, like start any kind of gender wars, but I find that um, boys are just like naturally drawn to, you know, like graphic novels, um, comic books, like that kind of stuff, which I'm, you know, very much an advocate for because I feel like if if a child's going to read anything, Mm-hmm. Then, you know, why would we why would we want to stop that if they're still going to learn, if they're still going to uh, seek out other knowledge, then mm-hmm. why not have it be a graphic novel or or a comic book? And I feel like if we're going to present our, our history and our stories, um, what better way to do it than with words and art? Yeah. You know?
2: Yeah. It seems way more Nietzsche, too, right? <laughs>
1: We, uh, we really did dig our, um, our pictographs, yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> our art,
1: our art. Um, so I guess one, one last question that I'd like to ask you is, um, who, who are your role models? Like who, who inspired you to do the work that you're do- doing now?
2: Uh. Oh my gosh. Like, to be honest, like when it comes to like writing, mm-hmm. it's hard to say because um, when I very first started writing, I, I like, cause I wrote a book when I was 13, 14 wow. was my first one. And I was at that time, the only writer I knew, <laughs> like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. Like there was no one really doing it. And the reason being is a lot of the reason why I do it now and why I kind of focus on youth a bit yeah. is because... Like at that time, I was reading books like The Outsiders, Harry Potter, like whatever. And those were good books, but they didn't reflect my life. And they didn't reflect my experience. And everything I was reading in school didn't reflect me. And The Outsiders, even like a book about gangs and stuff. And I was like, you know, I'm around gangs and they're not like that. (laughs) Like, There's no rumbles. Yeah. There's no fair play. Like it's a different life. Yeah. And so that book kind of. Inspired me to write my own stories. And what I started doing was like writing out pages and pages and pages and giving them to my friends to read. And my friends were like giving Mm -hmm. me advice and like whatever, peer reviewing me, right? And that's how I wrote a book was out of I'm not getting what I want. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to make what I want. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of where it came from. And I want other kids to kind of go that route like so much. Yeah. Because we don't have enough literature out there for all of us to relate to. But if like, even if three people from every community Mm -hmm. put out their experience like how many of our kids can relate to it
1: yeah exactly
2: so that's the kind of stuff that like at the time inspired me and then once it got to the publishing round Mm -hmm. um that's when i started being reached out to from other indigenous writers who i was completely unaware of because the only literature i had was what i saw at chapters when i happened to go which is at the time no indigenous people that i knew yeah And also um, what I had in school. Also, no Indigenous people writing books in my school. Like, it was all Harry Potter and whatever. So Richard Van Camp was actually the very first person to reach out to me. Oh, okay. And he gave me, like, so much encouragement. He was, like, to this day, he's actually, like, one of my biggest cheerleaders in life. Like, he's just such a great guy. And he's, like, you're going to do great things. He'd, like, send me these, like, encouraging, like, handwritten letters, like, which meant the world to me at the time. So that was my first role model, I think, when it came to writing. Yeah. And since then it's just flourished and I've expanded so much and I know so many people now yeah. that I think everyone kind of inspires me in some way. Mm. And when it comes to graphic novels, I was really inspired by um, Chuck Palahniuk, who's mm. non-Indigenous, but yeah. he wrote Fight Club and I'm like diehard fan. Like I will buy any book he puts out. Like yeah. I buy them all. And as I was approached from high water to write graphic novels, he had just put out his first graphic novel. Wow. So I was super kind of in tune with that. And he really inspired me. And a lot of the um, style I used Mm -hmm. is similar to him just because he's a big role model of mine. And he would never know.
1: (laughs) Who knows? Maybe he'll listen to this. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he'll be like, I must seek out Jen Storm.
2: <laughs> and write her an awesome letter.
1: <laughs> um. Well, thank you, Jen, for coming in and for, you know, sharing a bit of your story and sharing a bit of your reconciliation journey. Uh, I really appreciate that. And I'm sure our listeners do, too.
2: Awesome. Thank you.
3: Miigwech. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to Mino the Good Voice podcast, the show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. We just spoke with Jen Storm. Be sure to check out her work at portageandmainpress.com. Our second and final guest is Rebecca Chartrand, the Executive Director of Indigenous Strategy at Red River College. Chartrand has over 15 years of experience in the education industry, including developing an Ojibwe kindergarten to grade 3 language school. Her work in education derives from supporting and creating opportunities for Indigenous inclusion.
1: Bonjour, my name is Alyssa Blackwolf Kixon, and I am sitting here with Rebecca Chartrand. Hello. Hello,
4: and thank you for the invitation. Thanks for coming in. Tell us a bit about yourself. Well, I'd like to introduce myself with a uh, mm. bit of language that I know. So, Bujoo, Tansey Rebecca Chartrand, Dishnekas, Wabashke, Dem, Pine Creek, Volgar Winnipeg, Nindunji. My traditional name um, comes from the East, and I'm really happy to be here on uh, Treaty Territory One, um, which, as you know, is the homeland of the Anishinaabe, the Dakota, the Dene, the Cree, Oji Cree, and of course, the Metis.
1: I love hearing our people speak the language it just it there's a sense of feeling at home and I feel like I it's know, one right, thing eh? that can connect you know our elders with our young people I think that's definitely something that's important to right
4: now hey eh? absolutely <laughs> yeah the little bit that I know how to speak I I take such pride in that and uh You know, I do um, try to spend as much time with my dad, who's, you know, teaching me a little bit more um, when we spend time together. But for somebody like myself, who's been initiating language revitalization uh, programs, um, I don't often get the time to sit in them. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, but I do share what I know as an example of just, you know, trying to be prideful in what we do know.
1: How did your work or your position
4: um, respond to the calls to action? Okay, so um, currently I work with um, Red River College as the Executive Director of Indigenous Strategy. And it's a new position at the college, um, so I feel very privileged that I was tapped on the shoulder for this role. Um, Prior to this position, I was working in Seven Oaks School Division, where, um, you know, I led the charge to um, launch a Kindergarten to Grade 3 Ojibwe Bilingual Program, which is now um, increased to Kindergarten to Grade 5. And, um, you know, language was a huge part of what we were trying to achieve with the Aboriginal education policy that we developed in Seven Oaks. So when I moved over to um, Red River College in this new role, um, I really took that same um, passion and dedication to, um, you know, building a strong base for our children and and for our people when it comes to reconciliation. And um, so language is a huge part of that. And, For me as an Indigenous educator, um, I've often been in roles that, um, you know, are um, these new positions that are emerging, um, you know, Aboriginal education consultant or, you know, for school divisions or um, even for post-secondary institutes. And so in these positions, a lot of times it was, um, you know, there isn't a defined scope of work. You're having to determine what that work will look like and so um i feel really fortunate in my job now that um you know it is a it is a college-wide position um, but i also oversee the school of indigenous education and so um we're going through um, a huge transformation right now in terms of redefining what our supports look like for students so trying to keep a very student-centered perspective you know like what is it our students need to be successful um And of course, you know, um, identity and uh, wraparound supports are a huge piece of that.
1: That's amazing. So is there um, what what has changed since that has started at Red River?
4: Well, what has changed is um, we've grown. um, We've um, added five new programs to the School of Indigenous Education. So this past September, 2018, we launched an Indigenous Culinary Skills Program. We launched uh, an Indigenous Social Enterprise Program, um, an Access Health, Access Engineering, as well as um, Indigenous Languages Program. And so these five programs um, are basically um, illustrating that we really want to meet the needs of our students, but also the needs of our community. So um, the fact that we have an Indigenous language program really speaks to the need to revitalize languages. Our social enterprise program also speaks to the need to (coughs) address the hard realities in our communities, but also from that social perspective, right? So if we're looking at, you know, economic drivers in our communities, um, how do those economic drivers also address the social issues so we want people to be conscious of that collective well-being as much as we want people to be um, successful independent entrepreneurs right Um, our indigenous culinary skills program um, well we have the largest population here in Manitoba um, in in Winnipeg as indigenous peoples um, but yet we're we're really underrepresented in the um, culinary and hospitality sector. So this program will hopefully grow us into that industry with um, our graduates. And my hope is that, you know, they go, go on to create some of their own, you know, restaurants or their menus or or something that really um, helps increase our, our presence within that industry.
1: Yeah, because there's not a whole lot of indigenous <coughs> um, run or sort of concepts in the restaurant industry especially in winnipeg i think we have feast uh nietzsche commons has connie's corner connie's corner
4: i think both nietzsche and connie's have closed their doors right they have and they were both located in the north end of winnipeg and on um, main street which yeah. is really unfortunate but we also have Noël bernier who <coughs> is um a Métis, um, entrepreneur and a restaurateur. So he owns, um, Salisbury house. Um, so there's 16 restaurants here in Manitoba. I'm happy to say I'm also a small shareholder in that. Um, so, you know, I have a love for food and that's how we came together. (laughs) He is my partner by the way. And, um, and we're also looking at opportunities to grow into that industry. You know, we know the hard realities in our community. Um, You know, just the the lack of good food in our community, good produce, food sovereignty issues. So, you know, we want to find solutions to address those issues and to address issues like diabetes that has Mm. really, you know, harshly impacted people in my own family. Um, So these issues are important. Yeah, Yeah, overall.
1: Do you feel like um, there has been any changes in terms of Indigenous equity since the calls to action? in like in your specific industry so I guess that would be education
4: right well I'm at the post-secondary Institute at a post-secondary Institute and um, my role as the um, executive director of indigenous strategy um, allows me to look at that broad-scale perspective so what are we doing and so I've been in this role over a year now and some of the things that I've been doing is just an audit of the college, you know, an assessment of like, okay, I want to see the data on how many students do we have in all of our sectors, you know, whether it's business or, um, you know, trades, um, and our numbers are really low in some of the sectors. So, um, I think, you know, that in itself, as well as looking at, at how teachers are teaching and how students are learning is equally important as well as the type of supports that we provide for students. So some of the things that we're doing there is um, we're creating wraparound supports for students. So um, um, we've created 12 new positions in the School of Indigenous Education. So um, we want to ensure that, you know, once students start to think about coming to the college, that there's supports at that moment. So we've created um, aspiring student supports. Um, So those supports aren't only about recruitment, but helping students to prepare and get ready to transition to college. Um, We've also created navigator support. So we have two navigators who help students with those non-academic challenges. So like the housing, daycare, you know, urban living 101 if you're moving from on to off reserve. Um, We also have uh, two academic coaches which will help with the, the academic pieces. We have two wellness advisors and a wellness counselor. And our supports focus on intergenerational trauma. So first defining it and then making sure we have those correlating supports. Um, We've also created transition to employment support. So we're really trying to create a a seamless stream of supports for students from the time that they start to think about college all the way up into employment. We don't want to see graduation rates as our ultimate indicator of success. We want to see employment rates go up. We also want to consider that, um, you know, success for Indigenous students isn't just about academic success, but really about wellness. You know, how well is the student? How prepared are they? Uh, because if they're well, then, you know, our communities are well and we need to look at the strengths and and um, the abilities as well as the wellness of, of each individual person. How do you find um, coping
1: and support for for students who experience intergenerational trauma? How would that look different from students of the populace who don't experience um the the
4: effects of
1: residential schools
2: Mm
4: -hmm. well what that looks like for us like if we were just to look at it um how that plays out on a day-to-day basis is um, we often see a lot of interrupted learning so students fall off the face of the map because you know there's a crisis or a family obligation Um, and for us it's important that we look at things holistically and so when we think of trauma you know we we have to take into account that um we need to be flexible in our programming as well as holistic in our approach and how we support um our students in returning back to to learning so we have two elders that um, have consistently been working with um, the college and with our students um, and we can't underscore how important that spiritual component is to our students you know we As an education institute, we often cater to, um, you know, knowledge and skills. So what people will learn and how they'll apply that in the workforce. But for us, because of the um, intergenerational trauma, we need to create that support as well as the space to nurture and develop the motion emotional as well as the spiritual part so we have a sweat lodge that uh, was built at the college a couple years ago we offer you know at least two sweat um, lodge um, opportunities at least twice a month for our students but our elders are are there um, for our students and they're one of the most um, accessed uh, supports for our students so I think whatever we do we're trying to look at things holistically to make sure that we're not that nothing's missed and success for us is really about looking at the whole person and not just, you know, educating the mind.
1: Yeah. <coughs> how, how do you feel like your job, um, do you feel like your job was, the job that you have now, do you feel like it was possible before the TRC's 94 Calls to Action?
4: Good question. I think, I think the TRC woke people up and is holding people accountable, including post-secondary institutes across the college. And they may not have the answers in terms of what these positions look like, but for the first time, we're really giving our own people the opportunity to lead and to define. And, you know, so I don't take that for granted. I realize that it's a great opportunity. There's so much potential to affect change there. And right now I am pushing the envelope. (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing as much as I can to see how far we can go um, in building capacity and moving people along, Um, you know, whether it's through um, training staff on the truth and reconciliation and helping them understand why there's a need for reconciliation, Or building new positions of support for our students new programs and opportunities for our students um, they're all important pieces and at the end of the day um, you know we also have to figure out how we're measuring whether this is having impact Um, one of the things that I do want to point out is um, we are posting for a new position in the next week it's going to be um, A truth and reconciliation and community engagement manager so this person will work with me and we're going to create um, truth and reconciliation training for um, the college and my goal is to ensure that every staff member at the college has this training um, similar to like women's or whatever you know whatever type of training you come in when you're at the college and then the next step would be to ensure that every student graduating has some type of training or understanding Of truth and reconciliation and for me that's the bare minimum like that is the bare minimum like if we can do more than that then then you know good on the college for doing that which brings me
1: to the the big the big question
4: what is reconciliation Mm mm-hmm big question absolutely well we know what truth is (laughs) (laughs) and for us we've been working so hard to have that truth in um the education system and curriculum and perspectives and reconciliation is very interesting um because when we think about the work in the truth and reconciliation calls to action there's a lot of work involved in that and as indigenous peoples we've we've really overextended ourselves and and we've you know we've we've taken canadians by the hand and said you know walk with us right let's reconcile let's you know um be idle no more right so I think reconciliation is really the work of non-indigenous peoples you know we really if we're looking at it from um, an accountability perspective and with the common denominator being relationships we really need Canadians to step up and we need them to understand that the opportunities that have been afforded to them um, because of the treaties. you know, they you know, new uh, newcomers, um, you know, Canadians couldn't have settled into these territory territories without the treaties. And yet it's uh, it's a history that is not known well enough by the average Canadian. And so I'm really glad that this current government um, um, included that recognition, in uh, Canadian um, for, for new Canadians when they're taking the oath, they included recognition of the treaties mm-hmm. so to me that's a starting point but now let's build on that right let's internalize that and really understand you know that opportunities created for f- afforded to all Canadians were on the backs of indigenous peoples
1: that is one of the truest statements that I've ever heard spoken <laughs> um, do you think that our current government, um because you gave a really straightforward definition of re- what reconciliation is and we are in the era of truth mm. and reconciliation and our elders have done so much of the groundwork by putting that truth out there when when the TRC started this um so do you think our current government is on par in their promises for reconciliation well um,
3: hmm
1: <laughs> not that I'm getting you to like bash a certain political <laughs> party <laughs>
4: well I'd have to say that I think it's important to recognize that there have been huge ambitious commitments made to indigenous peoples in terms of reconciling this relationship and also um, You know when we look at it from a nation to nation perspective um you know we we need to see ourselves as equal partners in in reconciliation um where the federal government has stepped up is they've made commitments to um, change um, through budget right so if we look at that through uh, indigenous languages for example you know, the money um, dedicated to Indigenous languages um, prior was $5 million annually. Well, that amount went up to $89.9 million, um, which I- to me is an indicator of commitment. Um, how long it takes to see the actual um, results of that? Well, it's going to take years, right? It takes time to develop programs and to initiate things um, so that's a clear indicator now I know there's also been um, commitments to education to revamping the funding framework or um, you know commitments to um, other aspects of the fiscal relationship with indigenous peoples you know the idea of you know moving to a 10-year funding model as opposed to a year-to-year now I think those are steps in the right direction and um, you know our our leadership has um, you know, concerns about that because they want to ensure that, you know, they're meeting the needs of their membership. But you know, I I there's I could see both sides of the coin. You mm-hmm. know, I, I see our frustrations as indigenous peoples and it it'll never be enough and it'll never be quick enough. But I can also see the role of government in trying to make those commitments and I think this government has been ambitious in its commitments I think that they're doing everything that they can to try and meet those commitments. The fact that we w- you have Jody Wilson-Raybould as the first justice minister is a is another indicator that we are m- moving in the right direction, and I'm certain she's having huge impact in the work that she's doing. So, so I think you know the results are yet to be seen, but I could see definite commitments from this government um, that we haven't seen in prior federal governments to repairing that relationship and moving forward in a good way. That's a good answer. Now, how, uh,
1: if somebody, okay, sorry, I'm going to rephrase this again. If an indigenous youth sees what you're doing and says to themselves, that's what I want to do. What advice would
4: you give to them? Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, um it's inter- that's a really good question because um, when i think about where i've landed it's not something that i aspire to but when i think about the things that have driven me it's actually been those cultural um th- those moments that i spent in community with elders with knowledge keepers that really set laid down a path Right, so for example, um, one of the things that had the most impact on me as a young person was the story of the Seven Fires or the Anishinaabe prophecy story. Mm-hmm. You know, and in that story, um, you know, the elders would say, um, you know, and uh, and it's the youth, the youth that will pick up, you know, what was left behind, um, to make our nation strong again. And I really took that to heart, and I started to question, okay. Well, I'm a youth, mm-hmm. so what does that mean? <laughs> what role do I have to play, you know? And so it gave me a sense of purpose in in a story. And, um, you know, at the time, I was just learning how to drum and sing, too, and so I learned to find my voice through singing um, traditional songs. And, uh, again, those spaces created an opportunity to nurture my sense of self as an Anishinaabe person. And so I think... Um, you know i think being true to your heart being true to who you are as an individual um asking yourself the question you know where can i make um the best contribution you know to my family to my community i think that's always been at the heart of what i what i do i mean because like many of our own people i've grown up in trauma you know um, i've seen a lot of um, things growing up um and so those things um, really, you know, they're also motivators, right? You're wanting to create um, stronger family foundations, you know, for um, the people that you love, especially for your children. And so I think, um, you know, the, the path is really uh, determined by every individual. I, I've just been fortunate that I've had some, um, some great um you know, elders or knowledge keepers or experiences that have l- allowed me to strengthen myself um, as an Anishinaabe person because I see myself as that first you know um, in the work that I do mm-hmm.
1: yeah. so if you had one thing that you could say to your childhood self with everything that you know
4: now what do you think that one thing would be? Oh my goodness! You're gonna make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, um, I would say it's gonna be okay. Yeah, the future's bright. Hang in there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need to say that to my yesterday self. You know, <laughs> just hang in there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Rebecca, um, thank you so much for being on the show and Meek Witch for all the oodles of knowledge and everything that you do, because you really are a pillar in our community. I know there's a lot of people who look up to you and who really value the work that you do. So I just wanted to say a huge miigwech. Oh,
4: wow. That's so sweet. Thank you so much. I mean, your feedback (laughs) really, you know, I think it's what I needed to hear today. Um, And there are so many other people that are committed to this work. You know, that uh, deserve credit for me landing up where I am. And so, by you recognizing this in me, it also recognizes those that have taught me. So, thank you.
0: Welcome back to Mino Gandagat, the Good Voice Podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. We just spoke with educator Rebecca Chartrand. For more info, check out the Red River College website at rrc.com under Indigenous Education big Miigwech to all our guests on this episode, the 11th in our series. Thank you for sharing your stories and your thoughts on a subject that should be on every Canadian voice, reconciliation. We hope that you've enjoyed our conversations today and will tune in to future episodes as we engage in more thought-provoking conversations about reconciliation. We'll close off our episode with a track from Equal. This is Waniska. Check out more of her music at facebook.com Equal.
5: What if the trees look up resistance and just stop rowing? Or the rivers form the front line and just stop flowing? There's no amount of intellect that justifies lack of respect the power on this planet man it's time for us to redirect What we take for granted to face an underhand it won't get us to tomorrow for much more than you can stand The want for everything is really getting old The more you buy the more the time gets sold But I'll talk and teach and act and reach the masses with my desperate speech You seek what you destroy to eat not thinking of your own defeat What if the season started a revolution all the stars went away to escape our pollution what if it all came down to losing all that we own back to the earth where we all come from i wouldn't be surprised and i wouldn't be saved we're all so insignificant drowning in the waves we need to wake up wake up wake up we need to wake up wake up wake up
3: Wake up, wake up. What is good?
5: gonna get this right. I'm so tired, so tired, not sleeping at night. The last time I tried not to care so much, I had to go off Facebook, unplug and lose touch. But my eyes stayed open and the damn things kept seeing. I tried to look away but my damn heart kept beating. I saw them slouched on a bench outside the Starbucks. Hungry, broke, hung over in hell, call it hard luck. I reached in my pocket and I offered them a smoke. A couple of loonies, even though I was broke. Cause I knew I had a home family not in the system. A good man's Son and daughter and I started to miss them I also knew amidst my family dysfunction Mom was always there, I had stability, a junction I was lucky, I guess, to be shown love and respect If it wasn't for that, I'd be right there on the bench I left with a smile and I'll see you again Give them comfort, today I prayed in my head I thought of my family and the families before Through the overlapping traumas that'll keep us at war With ourselves and each other like we're so weak Blaming our condition on an inability to speak Believing that we choose to be addicted and violent Believing that we choose to be inactive and silent Fuck that, it's all a part of the system It's built to make us feel like we're inferior victims I won't be told that I'm lacking in ability The fact that I'm alive is a miracle Stop killing me You're killing me here It's time to wake up, wake up, wake
3: up Wanna Wake up, wake up!
0: Gandagan was produced on Treaty One Territory, the original lands of the Anishinaabek, Neheok, Ojikri, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. Our executive producer is Alyssa Blackwolf-Kixon, our associate producer is Sasha Mark, and I'm your host, Tim Fontaine. Our theme music comes to us courtesy of Boogie the Beat. Check out more of his brilliant work at soundcloud.com boogiethebeat. The interstitial music is courtesy of Bloom. You can hear more of their songs at bloom14.bandcamp.com. We would like to thank the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the University of Manitoba's Office of Indigenous Achievement, the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, the University of Manitoba Students' Union, and UMFM 101.5 for their support in the production of this series.